When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, I'm Dave Hendon and this is the Snooker Scene Podcast. This week I'm going to be talking to Phil Yates and Michael McMullen looking back at the English Open in Crawley, Mark Selby's great triumph and a few issues surrounding the event and then looking ahead to what's going to be a very busy period now heading into Christmas. We've got a lot of tournaments, World Open, Champion of Champions, Northern Ireland Open and into the UK Championship, the Scottish Open as well. Lots of qualifying going on as well before Christmas, so a lot of snooker still to come as we enter here in the UK, the winter months. Uh, we should also welcome a new snooker podcast uh, to the scene. Table Talk is uh, Will Snooker's new podcast, and uh, they've just released the first edition. And um, good luck to them. It's a different style to mine, but that's all That's all to the good, I think. Uh, but one thing I noticed, actually, uh, I looked at the podcast on Apple, uh, and I realised that... Um, and talk about being naive about these things, because I've been doing this for four years, I've realised that you can leave reviews of podcasts, and there were quite a few nice ones of mine, so thank you to anyone who's left a review, but I was told that actually, if you leave a review, it helps people actually see the podcast, it helps uh, them search for it. So if you have enjoyed this, and you listen on Apple, or whatever you listen on, if you could uh, leave some sort of review, it will help uh, guide people towards uh, the podcast. Uh, In the meantime, on with the chat with Phil and Michael. So here we are on Snooker's longest-running podcast, and uh, Phil, the big news from Crawley, Mark Selby, back in business as a winner. Absolutely, and the Home Nations events are some of the toughest to win. You have to win seven matches, and because a lot of those matches are best of sevens, they are potential banana skins. So for him to come through that and then win the final so impressively, I think it's going to be a real resurgence for Mark Selby. I think it's just the, the confidence boost he needs. But we mustn't read too much into it because, let's not forget, in the semi-final, Michael, he was literally a millimetre away from defeat. Yeah, Mark Allen actually surprised me. I'd noticed early on in the week, even when he was playing Andy Lee, a match which you could tell early on he was bound to win, really. He seemed to be turning down really surprising shots, completely against his normal instincts. And I think that actually cost him in the end uh, in the match against Selby. So I don't know why he's done that, but it definitely looks to me like a conscious decision. We know he's good friends with Sean Murphy. And Sean has been talking about how he's tightened up in his tactical game. But there's a difference between tightening up on your tactical game and playing tactically when you don't particularly need to. You've got to play to your instincts. And I think that cost Mark Allen towards the end of that match. But Dave, to the commentary for Eurosport that afternoon, and I don't think I've ever seen a double go so close to going into the middle pocket and not actually falling in. It was literally a millimetre from being in. And, of course, he was pretty much guaranteed to get the next ball, which he required to leave Selby requiring snooker, so he was absolutely on the, on the threshold of victory, and he didn't quite get there. It, it actually seemed to go below the, the, the line and then come back up again. I mean, how is that even possible? 
I think I was impressed with about Selby in the final. Oh, yeah, he was like he could have gone out, but the fact is he, he didn't. And it wasn't like scrapping around, was it? It was the exact opposite. I mean, his scoring was was as good as anyone's. Seven balls he missed all day, and most of them were not significant. Well, early on, I think it was ninety eight percent pot success rate in the first four frames. Early on, I thought he was sensational. He missed that black didn't he, off the spot in the fifth frame, which didn't cost him. But generally, I think it's one of his best ever performances. I was actually doing the report for Snooker Scene magazine, so I was looking back at his previous ranking event finals, and that's the fourth time, you know, he's absolutely dominated one. He beat Ding Dinty 10-1, Barry Hawkins 11-3, that one was 9-1. When he gets into that kind of groove, he's formidable. We always talk, and we talked about it in the preview podcast, about O'Sullivan in the English Open final against mm-hmm. Kyron Wilson a couple of years ago. It was right up there with it. It was, it was certainly on a par with that. But the interesting thing as well, we also said in that podcast about the million-pound bonus, we all agreed it was very unlikely to happen, but that there was a slight chance, but a very, very small number of players who you could conceivably see do it. Mark, I think, is one of those. It's still very unlikely, but at least it's the prospect of keeping that story going. And, of course, he could very easily go and win in Belfast, and then he's halfway there. Absolutely. I mean, wouldn't that be a great tale? I mean, you would very... Very unlikely he could win in Scotland as well. But to win two out of the first two, that would be a great narrative. There's one interesting thing, though, and he brought it up himself, and it's a true Judd Trump and Sean Murphy, um, who, again, hadn't won for you know a period of time over a year. The amount of stick that he got from people online, um, basically writing him off, and, and you get sort of daily nastiness on, on online, we know that, but also just generally people saying, well, he's finished... Um, I guess there's no better way to answer it, is there, than just, just basically, to, to, for want of a better phrase, stick it up him. Yeah, he was talking about that during the week, actually. He seemed a little bit frustrated because he wasn't actually playing great during the week, and he was saying, I really just have to get a title under my belt again. You know, he's only 36 years of age, it's quite young in snooker terms, and too young to stop winning titles when you've been so prolific at it as he has over the last few years. And the difference between success and failure at top-level snooker now is minuscule. People have bets on the top players playing each other. I don't know how you can do it because you can't really make a case out for any of them on any particular day. It really is just the way they might be feeling or the way the balls run or little nuances here and there. You can't make any definitive judgments. The only time I think you can have a bet on snooker now with any kind of confidence is if the chasm between the two players is so great and you're actually betting on the the worst player to lose, not the best player to Mm -hmm. win. When the top players come against each other, they are so, so good. It really is. It's not quite a toss of the coin, but it's getting close. It had been coming for a while. I mean, he'd been in a couple of semis already this season, so... We were saying it would be interesting to see how he responds to losing his number one ranking, being overtaken by other players. And so far, he seems to have responded extremely well. Yeah, and I like Mark. You know, he, he, he's a star who doesn't act like a star. You know, you wouldn't know. I mean, he's not world number one anymore, but when he was, you know, he didn't act like the big I am. And, and even last week, you know, I saw him in the, in the public area just chatting with people because I think he's never sort of forgotten where he's come from. We know that his, his upbringing was pretty humble. You know, he, at one point was kind of sleeping on the floor, you know, couldn't afford to play snooker. Malcolm Thorne gave him the free practice and he grasped it with both hands. And, and I guess it comes down, like all these things in the end, to, to, to hard work and just sort of having to believe in yourself. Well, he's the poster child, isn't he, really, for someone who's made the most of their ability. We all know there are players of equal ability out there who can play brilliantly in practice. But he's got that ability to produce on the big occasion and also not to give up. His attitude is tremendous. A little bit like Kyron Wilson. I think they're you know, made from the, come from the same cloth. Mm-hmm. And, and that, having that temperament is invaluable. People often talk about him as a grinder and a scrapper. Now, those people obviously know nothing about the game because he couldn't achieve the success that he has by just being that in the modern game. I think 
what we saw over the weekend was both sides of them, scrapping it out, battling for everything in the semi-final, and then producing the performance that a lot of people don't give him enough credit for, how often he produces performances where it is just relentless heavy scoring. Often, you know, not very often to the level that he produced in the final, but we definitely saw both sides of him. And that's an asset if you can play both types of match and win them both. And let's not forget the quarterfinal against Meiji Wen under an awful lot of pressure when he went 3-0 down. Meiji Wen had just beaten Ronnie O'Sullivan in the previous round. He can play, let me tell you. And when he was 3-0 down, Selby must have thought, well, that's another good run, another consistent run, but maybe I'm going to go out again. And mm. what happened? He turned it all around, so every credit. Dave Gilbert, uh, obviously fourth defeat in the final, but very different to certainly the last couple. It's not like he was ever in a position to win it. You know, it's one of those where you, a bit like with Kyron, with Ronnie, you just got to sort of sit there and say, well, well, well played. He sort of did that, though. I mean, yeah. afterwards, he didn't seem like overly disappointed, of course. You know, he would have loved to have won his first ranking title, but he seemed to take that attitude. Look, the other guy played really well. He's one of the all-time greats. And, you know, we move on and hopefully there'll be another final soon, which I suspect there will because... How much has he improved in the last couple of years, Dave Gilbert? And, you know, he's not someone who, when he was coming through, we were all looking at saying, this guy is going to be you know, a real top player. He's got that potential. And more credit to him for that, that he has become a top player, you know, without all that early promise. When I was commentating on Dave Gilbert when he was lower down the ranks, I was guilty of being a little bit repetitious because the one phrase I always used to say when he was playing, because I genuinely believed it, he looks the part... You could see he hit the ball very well. He could build breaks with ease. He knew what to do with the cue ball, all about the game. It was just really harnessing all of his talent, and, and thankfully he's done that now. The great thing for me about Dave Gilbert is he appreciates what Snooker's given him. He appreciates the fact that he can go to a tournament, win 20 grand. You know, a lot of the players, or some of the players, I don't think are quite in the, the real-world bubble. But, of course, when you've been planting potatoes yeah. or cutting down He's trees... He's had a job, that's the point. He's yeah. had a job in the real world. In some field in January, yeah. you know. And then you go and play snooker. What's more prefer what's, what's preferable? Playing snooker. And Dave's got a really good attitude. Yeah. Seems a good point to mention Ronnie O'Sullivan's behaviour last week. Um, he didn't seem that happy with, the, with being there from the start. I mean, the first match he played against Jamie O'Neill was a sort of breakneck speed. And uh, he did a couple of things that, that certainly attracted comment. In that match, at one point... He sort of th just threw the rest on the floor, couldn't be bothered to hand it back to the referee, which I said at the time when he was obviously in a hurry, but then he, after that he kicked it under the table, which I just thought was just at, completely out of order. Um, and he sort of re renewed his criticisms of the venue, although actually I agree with a lot of them. I don't think the, the, the venue there is, is right for a ranking event. It's a brilliant leisure centre, actually, fantastic. The problem is all the other activities are going on at the same time. So you've got the swimming galas and you've got the people playing squash, you've got all the kids running around doing their gymnastics, all of which is fine, but there's a major ranking event going on as well. Um, and I've, I was very surprised we went, we went back there, actually. Um, I, think, I think that, you know, there must be, in England, there must be a better venue. I don't think we're going there next year. Well, he, that was probably what was frustrating him, was mm. that he complained the previous year and it's like, oh, what, they didn't move it because I said they should move it? <laughs> I think, look, he'd made the point, the previous year, he's, I don't think he needed to start going on about it again this year. And once he'd made the point once this year, he didn't need to keep talking about it for the whole week. You know, there are bigger things going on in the world than, you know, a world-ranking snooker tournament where you might win £70,000 in a week, <laughs> maybe not being played in the best possible venue. So, you know, you've got to see the bigger picture. And that's the sort of thing Ronnie actually talks about a lot. And he talks about poor people and how he wants to help them. And there was the thing in Cardiff a couple of years ago where he bought the food for the homeless guy. And when he was in contention to win that million-pound bonus, he said he'd give a lot of it away to, you know, help starving people, which is all very commendable. But it doesn't really sit well with them complaining, you know, about the wonderful lifestyle and the privileged lifestyle that you have. Well, you mentioned the bigger picture. Of course, he put a picture up online um, of the, the sort of cafe area 
in Crawley saying how unhygienic it was. But it turned out it was from like last year because I actually went down and looked at the place and all the furniture was different, they'd refurbished it. So I don't really know why you would do that. And then, of course, this led to the latest chapter of Ronnie versus Barry Hearn. So Barry got involved when I talked sport and they started having to go at each other. You know, it's kind of two, two incredibly talented men in their own fields who actually need each other. Barry needs Ronnie to be playing and Ronnie needs Barry to be promoting tournaments. So why don't they just give it a rest? I'll come from a, a little different perspective here. As you know, I do a lot of golf. Now, in the world of golf, you know this, Michael, as well, you would never, ever have a culture where anyone, let alone one of the star players, and Ronnie is the star player in snooker, you'd never have a culture where they would complain publicly about a venue or a tournament. It's just not done. And I think it's got to be a, a bad thing for the game in general when these complaints are aired in public, so that's not a good thing. I think with the home nations, it was my first experience down in Crawley, and I think Dave's absolutely right. The actual centre itself is tremendous. If it was in my hometown, it would be a great facility to go to. There's a, uh, an athletics track at the back there, which is lovely. You've got all the different sports catered for, but as a snooker venue, it doesn't cut the mustard. There's no doubt about that. So I think the venue was one thing that riled him. I don't think he particularly likes that sort of festival, multi-table atmosphere of the home nations anyway, with the exception of the Welsh Open, which I think he does enjoy. So, But then don't play. That was my yeah. next point. If you don't play, don't play. One thing I'll say in his defence, though, is I heard someone say down there, well, you know, there's 128 players, they should all be treated the same. The point is they're not. He's put on the poster, he's put on the main table, he's used to sell the event. So they, World Snooker almost saying to him, you're special, and maybe that's how he wants to be treated. Um, hopefully when he gets to Belfast, and Belfast, by the way, is a great venue. I mean, that's a great tournament. So hopefully if he plays in that, he'll, he'll cheer up a bit. Um, let's move on and look ahead because we're in a very, very busy period now, Snooker. We've got a lot of tournaments coming back to back. The players are off to Yushan, uh, which is the furthest to get to. It takes forever to get to and probably feels like it takes longer to get back from if, you, if you've been beat for the World Open. Then into the Champion of Champions. And, and of course, that's, Phil, that's actually created problems, hasn't it? Because at the moment, we know 15 of the players in the Champion of Champions. Jimmy White's waiting to see if there's a repeat winner. But no one can know yet when they're playing because we don't know who's going to get knocked out when in, in Yushan. When Captain James T. Kirk was in the Star Trek Academy... Wait for it, folks. Yes, this is, what, <laughs> this is good. The, the, the test to prove yourself was called the Kobayashi Maru... And basically, it was impossible to pass. There was no answer to it. Is this a different conversation? No, 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 no. no. Take that table talk. Yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And he did pass it because he cheated. Right. So that that was the story in Star Trek. For the organisers, the champion of champions coming after the World Open could be Snooker's version of the Kobayashi Maru. There could be no solution. I'll tell you why. If they make a draw, and obviously there are four players on each day, and one of those four players are all involved in the semi-finals in Yushan. How do you start Coventry? How do you start it? So they can't make the draw until very late on the week before the Champion of Champions, which is obviously going to create tremendous problems in terms of ITV billings, um, the TV information, who's playing when, ticket sales, all that kind of stuff. I think that's the worst stuff. thing. If yeah. you want to go to Coventry, say you are a Ronnie fan or a John Higgins or whatever... How do you you can't book a ticket? You just don't yeah. know. And and that's and the, but the weird thing is, it's all the same people. I mean, Matching World Snooker, they're different companies, but it's the same people in effect. Um, obviously, there are issues around like 
TV uh, contracts and, and when you can have tournaments. But it's not ideal, is it? And particularly as Yushan is literally the furthest away that we play snooker on, yes. on the circuit. And also there's a seeding system in the Champion of Champions as well where the top eight seeds, based on the status of the tournaments they've won, play the bottom eight seeds. So you can't stick all of the players who are going to be beaten early in Yushan or didn't qualify you can't stick all of those on the Monday because it just wouldn't work. Also, that would mean that you've manipulated the draw, which you can't do either. So I think that Matchroom, who promote the Champion of Champions brilliantly, could have a real headache. They wouldn't want anybody to go out, but I think if they got a, a few big names going out early, at least they could formulate some kind of plan. Well, I would say if I was Neil Robertson, I'd get myself to Coventry. Uh, that's Coventry in the, in the Midlands, by the way, um, on that Monday. Because he hasn't, cause obviously he didn't get to the qualifiers, so he's got to play Monday, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I would think so, yeah, yeah. I mean, but then again, you see, you can say he plays on Monday, but you can't say who he plays no. because it would be a manipulation of the draw. But what, what do you do then, I mean, about Yushan? You know, I mean, do, do you have then a situation where the winner of that maybe gets a place in the Champion of Champions the following year? Could that be one way? It would help marginally, that's all. Uh, obviously, if there's a, a multiple winner in Yushan, if someone who wins that tournament who's already qualified for this year's Champion of Champions, the beneficiary is Jimmy White. Now, he could play on the Monday as well, but again, it's all about the fact you need to do a proper above-board draw, and you can't do it until you know who's been beaten it used over to, there. It used to start on a Tuesday, of course, uh, and then ITV changed the schedule, so now they used to do it that way, didn't they? The two semi-finals were on the Saturday. Now there's one on the Friday night, one on the Saturday night, which I actually think is really good, but it's like everything. You, you, know, you can't change anything without it having a knock-on effect on something else. If in future years there was a tournament that immediately preceded the Champion of Champions, one thing that would perhaps help would be that the champion of champions played last 16 for the first few days and then the quarterfinals that would help well i think that would be better anyway you know i think that would be a better format in any case so yeah, but i like the thought. format but i do like the format as it is actually you know you've got two best of sevens in the afternoon and then the the group final at night which is best of 11 and it's it's something different and i think it works and i also think the champion champions i mean it's very quickly become established as a, as a big event but time of year it comes around i think for for british snooker fans it's almost like Almost like the sort of start of the season proper, isn't it? You know, the weather's really bad, it's cold, it's wet, everyone's miserable. The snooker's on, brilliant, it'll cheer us up, get yeah. the fire on. And a lot of people, you know, older people who watch snooker, I think they're still in that notion mm. that if something's on ITV or BBC, it's got that little bit more prestige. And mm. this is the first event of the season that's on either of those. And it's, so many. it's a great venue as well, the Rico Arena. I'm really looking forward to the tournament, I must say. We're here recording this at the Morningside Arena in Leicester, which is the home now of the Championship League. And quite a few of the players here have said to me how much they enjoy the Champion of Champions. It's got that cachet, hasn't it? It's got a relatively short history, but I think mm. the players really love it. Yeah, Matt Sell was saying to me actually last week how it's going to be the first time in his career he's actually played in that sort of environment because even when he was in the final in India, it's not really the same sort of you know, setup that you have. So to be playing in that you know, one table, big arena, big crowd, live on TV environment for the first time in his career, is incredibly excited about it. And do you know what actually I think is a really good thing about it? Mark Williams, number two in the world, isn't in it. In a funny sort of way, I think that brings more prestige to it because you can be ranked number two in the world, but if you've not won a tournament, you don't get into it. You normally ask the questions, Dave. I'm going to ask you one here now. I watched the first promo for the Champion of Champions last night. It was really well done, actually. Um, and featuring heavily in that pr promo was Rhianne Evans. Mm. Now, it's a controversial thing with many people she's in the tournament. In my opinion, I think it's great. I think it's going to add tremendous interest to the tournament. And that's got to be good if it gets viewing figures up and it gives her a great opportunity. 
it gives her a great financial opportunity. She is guaranteed in that tournament more than twice as much as she won for winning the Women's World Championship. Yeah. So what's your question? The question is... No, no, <laughs> See, it's not as easy as you think. No, it's, it's no, no, no. The, the, as other people yeah, have found out. Yeah. yeah. No, the, the, the question is, do you agree with her being in there? Yeah, well, I don't disagree. I mean, I think it's called the Champion of Champions. She won a tournament. What, what I, the only issue I have is it's kind of, if she hadn't won it and someone else had, would they have been invited in? It's like Jimmy. I'm pretty sure if Darren Morgan had beaten him in the World Seniors final, Darren, as he would have told us, um, would not have been invited. So I think I've got no issue with... Um, a criteria as long as it's set out and sort of adhered to sort of from the start of the year um, you're right it will add a lot of interest and I think always with sport you know you have to sort of balance what is fair and what does that word mean anyway against the commercial imperatives she lives locally as we know you know she's going to bring a lot of people she'll bring a lot of media interest uh, I've got no problem with it at all um, it's not like a normal tournament is it it's, it's, a, it's an event for people who won tournaments and she's won one she's not won one on the main tour but she's won the Women's World Championship 12 times as well you know I mean she's had an incredible record in, in, on, the, on the women's tour so yeah I, I look forward to seeing her You talk about the criteria I think they have said haven't they that, that, that this will be a regular thing now. Well that's fine I've got no issue there if they, if they keep to that but it just seems like let's be honest if Jimmy hadn't won that seniors the World Seniors I, Champion wouldn't be in it I totally it? agree with that I don't know if it's the same actually with the women's I, mm. I think they would have uh, given the place to whoever won it Maybe And I think it's a good barometer as to how they stuck up against the leading men players Final subject then. So we're, as you mentioned, Phil, we're at the Championship League, and and the day we're recording this is the turnth day of the Championship League. It's the hundredth group. Um, I think even I mean a lot of people kind of are, it's myst- finding a bit mysterious this event because it's not open to the public. But I think even us when we turn up on day one in two thousand and eight, we wouldn't think we'd be here now, would we? Two hundred da- two hundred glorious days. Well, I made a, a film reference before about Star Trek. The the film reference for this one is. Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor stir crazy. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you'd have been at all 200 days, I think you might have need cancelling. But I really enjoyed, I must say. And we've had some lovely venues everywhere we've been. The people have treated us absolutely fantastically. Crondon Park started it off. Then we went to the Rico Arena for a while. We had four days of it in Barnsley, didn't we? And now we're here at the Morningstar Barnsley Arena. Barnsley was like sort of George Lazenby of the thing, wasn't yeah, it? Sort of yeah. almost forget it ever happened. That's right. Yeah. We, we, myself and Michael turned up, we drove from a tournament in Preston over there and there was a, a hurricane going on, wasn't there, when we, when we arrived. But yeah, yeah. that's what I remember about that week. But no, the other thing I, I remember is that over the, the year since 2008 when it began, we've seen some absolutely wonderful snooker mm. play because I think the players are under slightly less pressure than they normally would be in a, in a competitive environment. And we've seen so many great matches and so many great breaks. Well, I think for me, we were talking about it last night, the best match was 10 years ago. The final was Marco Fu against Mark Allen. And in those days, of course, you were playing for a place in the Premier League, which only had seven players in it. It was a massive thing to be in it because it was huge money. And there weren't that many other tournaments. And Mark Allen was 2-0 up in the final. He'd already beaten Marco 3-0, actually, in the round-robin section. Marco needed a snooker on the pink in the third frame. Got it. Potted a great pink then won it on the black, then made a 90-odd to level and a 1-3-4 in the last frame. Absolutely brilliant match. So there's been some fantastic standout uh, play over the years. I remember meeting an American guy who lived in Denmark once, and unbelievably, he knew about the Championship League. And when he found out that I was the commentator on it, he said, what, is that the thing that looks like it's played in a brothel in Amsterdam? So the reach of the Championship <laughs> League no, is, 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 well, listen, it, it could be, that's the, that, that, that's the thing. I mean, it's a bit of a mystery to some people because, of course, they don't admit the public into it. But uh, the funny thing is, you know, the more and more tournaments there are, the more we say, is there going to be place for this in the calendar? And yet, the more and more, 
the top players come to play with. Well, that's the point. And people who do... Uh, it, it hasn't got the best reputation, I think, with snooker fans because it is a closed shop and we live in the sort of cult media culture where you're always told it's your tournament, you know, we want your views. Normally the media don't care actually about anyone's views, but they tell, oh, we want your views, tweet us and all the rest of it. You know, we'll get an unpaid intern to skim over it. That's, that's the kind of thing. Here, we don't do that. We, they've just set up a Twitter account because they've got a sponsor for the first time. But basically... You can't allow the public in because they might, people might be able to manipulate the betting on their phones ahead of the stream. Okay, so you're not allowed in. So it's a bit of a sort of mysterious world. But the fact is, look at the field. The reason it's continuing is because the players support it. You know, we've already had Neil Robertson, Stuart Bingham, uh, those sort of guys here, Marcel, Barry Hawkins. Judd Trump's coming back in. Of course, Judd Trump won this event before all the other tournaments he won. He was only a teenager, yeah. yeah. Um, it was a kind of big breakthrough because he was in with the big boys. John Higgins is, is coming back. He's won it before and. It makes money for everyone. It clearly makes money for the bookies. It makes money for the players. Dare I say, the commentators. Um, we're all looked after. It's a nice event. And if there's room in the calendar, what's the, what's the problem? And it's also a small tournament that's had a very big impact in much larger tournaments. The very first year, 2008, Ali Carter played a whole succession of groups. He yeah. became very, he very, himself, became very, yeah. very sharp. Fifty matches he played. Yeah. Yep, very sharp. And he went on to do really, really well at the World Championship. 2015. Who was the winner? Stuart Bingham. Yeah. What happened at the World Championship? He lifted the trophy. Well, yeah. well, Ali, just going back to him, he said actually that he was having financial troubles at the time mm-hmm. and he was struggling with his game. He played all those matches, went to the Crucible, made the maximum, so that was the financial problem sorted. Then he goes on to reach the final. And he did actually say during that run at the Crucible that playing all those matches, 10 minutes down the road from where he lived, it had really sharpened him up. And of course, after that, within a year, he was a ranking event winner. Not long after that, he was ranked number two in the world, and it all started at the Championship League. And you look this week, we won't name any names, but a very well-known player was sitting between matches the other day, looking like he wanted to start slapping himself around the head. He was so frustrated. That's how much it meant to him. A couple of other players yesterday, things got really heated between them, because it actually does mean a huge amount to them. They see it as a great opportunity. And of course, Martin Gould, tying up with what we were talking about earlier, Struggling a bit the last couple of years, but he's in the champion of champions in a couple of weeks because he won this last season. And even more topical, of course, in terms of players who've done well in this and then gone to bigger things, Mark Selby. It was the week before the English Open. Mm. He played a load of matches here Mm. over those four days. He didn't win a group, but he came close. That shammed him up and he went down to Crawley and and got the silverware. And and Judd even said it when he won the Masters. He said that having uh, spent a couple of weeks um, at uh, Coventry, as it was then, uh, had really uh, got him um, sharpened up for that. So it can have a huge impact on your, on your season and certainly in Ali's case and one or two other cases on your career. Ali talked about it on this very podcast, one of 92 episodes. Uh, just thought I'd mention that. So just to wrap up then, so it's not all about the snooker here, is it? I mean, we've had a lot of laughs. I, I remember, and this will tell you something about Steve Davis because he played in it one year. And the room in Crondon, it was very, everyone was in there, weren't they? The players were in there, officials, journalists, everybody would sit round. And he said to Sharon from Matchroom, who ran, who ran the event, he said, Sharon, I'm, I know I'm on at six, so it's like 20 past five, I'm just going to have half hour sleep. And he literally laid out on the chairs that were against the wall, and within, I would say, about 30 seconds was asleep. All the noise going on didn't affect him, and then literally to the second, half an hour later, wakes up, is ready to play. I mean, that's not, mm. not normal, is it? Yeah. <laughs> We've just had so many stories like that here, and it's a great vibe because everyone really mixes here, don't they? The referees, yeah. uh, us the players, the officials, everybody. It's, it's a really great vibe. And you mentioned Steve. I mean, pretty much all the modern greats have played in this. Jimmy's been in it. Ron. Jimmy's been in it. Ronnie's Henry. been in it. Ronnie almost won it one year. Yeah. Henry was one of the last tournaments he ever played yeah. uh, back in 2012. So they all thought... 60 players play. have been in it. Yeah. 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 And from a, a commentary perspective, we've had some fun as well. I mean, I remember the very first event at Crondon. I don't think they quite appreciated 
that they needed a couple of soundproof commentary boxes in there. So if you were commentating on table two, it meant you were actually in the toilet. You were commentating yeah. from the toilet. Well, a lot of people say we belong, in fairness. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. verbal diarrhoea and all that. Yeah, yeah. I agree, yeah. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so the thing was, it was so small in there that I always do a research for every single match I do, and I know Dave does as well, and I know you do, Michael. When you've got research, that means you've either got a laptop or you've got uh, pieces of paper to deal with. And in order to facilitate bringing those in, you had to pull the seat of the toilet mm. down and put the put the research on the top of the toilet. That's how that's how snug it was. So it's not always been a. But they they went the opposite way. They didn't. They couldn't use. We went outside. They, remember they had the booths outside, and so literally in the outdoors. And it started snowing one day, and and Neil Fold said it was like a snow globe in reverse. You like, you were outside in like a little bubble, and you could see the snow coming down, and you could sort of if you, if you if you got distracted by the snooker, you could just sort of stare at the you know the horizon. I think the the funniest thing, and it was a little bit sadistic on our part, but it was Mar Johnson Allen who happened mm. to commentate on this particular match, and it was a match involving Fergal O'Brien and Peter Ebden. Now you can guess it wasn't because it was fast; it was noteworthy. It was the opposite. And poor old Mark, I think he went through the ringer. Was it three hours or something? It was a long time, yeah. yeah. Horrible. Yeah. Really. I yeah. think they're actually still playing somewhere yeah, along yeah, the yeah. way. They had us in a truck at one stage, actually. We, yeah. were, we, we were afraid someone was going to come and move the truck while, <laughs> while, while you're in the booth. And then, of course, at Coventry, the booths were dangerously close yeah. to the tables. And there were at least two incidents last season where certainly I put players off. I think uh, Neil Robertson was on a maximum. Mm. Um, and got distracted. But I mean, what what can you do? You know, I mean, you've got you're there to do the commentary. But anyway, we're in a, a much better location now. Nobody's asked me, but I'm going to give you my two greatest Championship League moments of on-table action. Not so much a, a moment. The first one, Neil Robertson making 22 centuries, mm-hmm. which is a record for any tournament. 22 centuries in one tournament in one season is extraordinary, and that propelled him to 103 centuries for the season, which remains a record. But my other personal moment was when Fergal O'Brien made his 147. Got precious little for it. I think it was a £500 high break award for the winning the high break in the group. But I've never seen anyone of the 150 plus people, or 150 plus maximums we've seen, no one has ever been happier to make one. He was over the moon and I was so pleased for it. Just as nobody has ever been happier to win a ranking tournament than Fergal was when he won the British Open 20 years ago this year, incidentally. But I've told Fergal I'm still waiting for my cut of that £500 because what happened was the day before someone had dropped out and Luke Richards from Matchroom was ringing around desperately trying to get someone. And you know Fergal, if he'd been told it's starting in New Zealand at 9 o'clock mm. tomorrow morning, he would have been there. So I just happened to have a number, be sitting there. So I said, look, I've got Fergal's number here. They rang him, first plane over, makes the first and only maximum of his career. So I'm still waiting for my 10%. And what about Mark Davis making two maximums as well? Mm. Dave Gilbert, 147. Yeah, yeah, it's all happened. It's all happened at the Championship League. It's all happened on this podcast. Uh, by the way, big news that A to Z of Snooker will be returning soon. So uh, we've uh, yeah, we've got the extension from the EU and uh, we're going to we're going to come back with that shortly on Snooker's longest running podcast. Sports Social Podcast Network.